Hello, welcome to the Better Outcomes Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Each episode, we bring you a conversation with leaders across the healthcare industry, exploring topics ranging from new treatment techniques and interventions to novel service delivery methods and business models. And now your host, Rafi Salazar from Rehab U Practice Solutions, a leader in patient engagement and retention strategy. Let's explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Well, hello again. Welcome to another episode of the Better Outcomes Show. I'm your host, Rafi Salazar. This week, I am doing another Audible, <laughs> if you would. I'm throwing up a recording of a webinar that we did last year on communicating and delivering high-impact, high-value services. And the reason I'm putting this up there is really because, one, I'm at the tail end of this book uh, project push. The publisher wants it done, and I need to get it out the door. And I just spent an entire probably three or four solid days editing and going through the manuscript, and one whole chapter is on communicating value to patients. So part of that research um, for that book or for that chapter in the book involved kind of listening back to some of the stuff I had written before, some of the stuff we had put out before, and came across this older webinar. It's called Tapping Into Value, How to Communicate, Deliver um, High Impact, High Value Services to Patients, How to Communicate and Deliver High Impact, High Value Services to Patients. So um, was listening through it and thought, you know what, this might be a good episode for the podcast, not only because it kind of falls right in line with this chapter that I'm writing for the book, and uh, but also because it's one of the ones that doesn't require a whole lot of visuals, so <laughs> so you don't need to worry about charts and graphs and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, hopefully, all of the, the main theme in the book that I'm writing, in the work that I do at Rehab U with clients, all of it centers around this idea of, of humanizing healthcare insofar as that healthcare is deeper than a transaction. It's not like you're buying, the patients aren't buying services or buying like a product off a shelf or something like that. They're seeking treatment or advice. A lot of times it's that consultative approach that they're looking for. They want guidance. They, there's something going on with them. It hurts. They can't do something you used to do before. Uh, they have pain and they have some kind of dysfunction or limitation. Maybe they have a, a significant diagnosis and they want to know what the path forward is for them. You know, whether this be a rotator cuff injury or a, a fracture or whether this be some huge life-changing diagnosis like Parkinson's or cancer, patients that end up in most clinicians' door, at most clinicians' door, really want guidance and the expertise that you have spent your entire career developing. You know, they don't want to be told, you know, here's some pamphlets, read it over, pick a treatment option. They want to be guided in their decision about how to manage their health, how to move forward, how to plot their path towards recovery, whatever, whatever the case may be. And that requires much more than a surface level or transactional approach to the patient engagement or to that relationship. 
because healthcare is a human experience. It is a human relationship. It's one person that's skilled in the art of healing. That would be you, the clinician, helping another person, another individual who has some sort of issue, right? And you are, your role as the clinician is to guide them on their path to recovery. It's not to prescribe a treatment. It's not to give them a pill. It's not to give them exercises or do a manipulation to them. It's to, to walk beside them on their path and be the, the guide, the guide, if you would, um, providing insight when necessary, coaching and encouragement. And yes, sometimes that involves stretching a muscle or issuing some medication or completing in the case of surgeons, some kind of surgery to, to repair something or to take something out. That's all part of it, but that's all secondary to the primary role, which is being the the person or the um, the guide is the word that I keep using, right? It's the, being the guide that is there to help another person who might not have that expertise, who doesn't have that expertise because they're not in healthcare, plot their course towards recovery. And that is the primary role of a clinician. You know, Bronnie Thompson mentioned it in way, way back in episode like five or six, that clinicians really need to see themselves not as doers, but as knowledge translators, in that we have this vast amount of healthcare knowledge available, and it's um, it's available to our patients via Google and WebMD, and that's not always the best, best in the world. But we have, because of our training and our education, and the continuing education courses we're going to, hopefully, that we're always picking up a vast amount and a wide breadth of knowledge in the technical and in the in the healthcare space, right? Like in our specialty field, we have a wide breadth of knowledge. And our goal as clinicians, our, our real primary role as clinicians is to take that very deep, very wide breadth of knowledge that's super huge and super technical and apply it specifically to this patient and their unique situation, right? And that requires one, taking the time to understand that patient and their situation. There's a, Books have been written on that topic alone, right? Um, I think one, a good one is um, what, what Patients Say, What Doctors Hear is a great book. It kind of talks about that dynamic of truly understanding a patient's circumstances and, um, and then you know, modifying your communication appropriately. But that's the point, right? We need to understand where they're coming from, and then we need to take our, our very deep knowledge and apply it to their specific situation. So step one is understanding where they're coming from. And part of that is understanding their desired future state, as we call it, or what they want for the future, their vision for the future, and then helping them achieve that. And that when we talk about offering high value, high impact services, that's where it's at. It's not in fixing this problem or this pain or this symptom in the here and now. It's about setting up and helping facilitate on behalf of our patients and clients that desired future state or them achieving that desired future state. So that's what the the point of this webinar here that you're going to listen to in a minute is all about is how do we how do we discover that how do we communicate that how then do we position ourselves as clinicians to be able to deliver on that. So without further ado here is um, tapping into value how to communicate and deliver high impact. Well, without further ado, let's dive in. So let's talk a little bit about tapping into value, what I call communicating and delivering high impact uh, 
high value services. All righty, a little bit about me before we get super involved. Uh, my name's Rafi Salazar. I guess my legal and clinical name is Raphael E. Salazar II, not to sound too pretentious there. Um, I'm a, a graduate of what was the Medical College of Georgia. Now it's Augusta University after several name changes. <laughs> I started my clinical career at select corporate, uh, a select medical corporation in their contracting office. So I was responsible for a couple nursing homes, a couple skilled nursing facilities doing the rehab, particularly the OT on that side. So it was two different facilities, something like 100 beds between the two of them. Um, and the bulk of what we did was subacute rehab at one facility, and then the rest was, you know, your long-term care. From there, I transitioned over to Charlie Nord VA Medical Center, which was a great learning opportunity for me as a clinician and uh, as a leader. So I was able to, to do a lot of their leadership development there, move through their executive leadership series, ended up running their outpatient specialty rehab clinic which basically the way I describe that to people is anybody who um, had a surgery on their upper extremity came to our clinic, anybody who was seen by multiple specialties and they still had pain or dysfunction came to our clinic. So we saw kind of the most complicated on the outpatient side, which is really, really, um, it was interesting. It was great. It was impactful work. We did a lot of work with chronic pain management and, and the like. So it was, it was just good. I always say that the folks at the VA, a lot of the clinicians of the VA really are just good people. They're just hamstrung by the VA system, by working for the federal government. Um, that's all I've got to say about that. Uh, from there, I moved to doing some consulting with the Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Disabilities here in Georgia. And the bulk of that work was around healthcare policy, around what we called integrated clinical support. So we set up basically a network of community clinicians that could provide some advisory and training and technical assistance to both residential providers and families of folks that were on the comp and now waivers here in Georgia. Most of these individuals had either a developmental or intellectual disability or some sort of behavioral health diagnosis. So we did that. Part of that work involved rolling out their telehealth initiative across Georgia, which is a pretty interesting job to be part of. And, um, and basically what we did there was for lack of a better word, we did deinstitutionalization. We brought people out of state run hospitals and, and set them up in the community to live engaged lives. About the time I left Charlie Norwood for the consulting job with, with community resource associates, um, I had gone through at the time, if you remember back in 2014 ish, uh, the VA was in the news for all of the wrong reasons, right? So we had been in the news for the, it was called the scheduling scandal or whatever that really broke out of the Phoenix, Arizona VA. But there was an issue where veterans were basically um, missing appointments or not being scheduled for appointments. There were paper logs instead of electronic logs. And it was a, it was a big, big mess. It was a big PR uh, cluster bomb, if you would, for the VA. And the VA was in a very bad way in as far as patient engagement, um, people and the public's perception of the quality of care that the VA provided. And some of that was, you know, entirely warranted given some of the outcomes. I mean, you had, you had instances of veterans waiting, you know, four years for a colonoscopy. By the time they came in, they had stage three or four, you know, colon cancer and, you know, their outcomes could have been much better if they had been brought in on time. So it was a very big mess. And 
part of what we did or part of what I was able to do at the VA, um, they were running a new program called relationship-based care. And the, the goal of it was really to do two things. One, it was to kind of improve the, the public, um, both on the outside internal and external stakeholders of the VA healthcare system, try to improve their perception of the quality of care that was provided by being more transparent and by opening lines of communication. And then it also aimed to improve the clinical outcomes and actual the quality of services delivered by building relationships between both the individual departments or clinicians on a care team with a, a veteran and his or her family or support structure. So it was a very, very powerful um, program that we rolled out. And we, I remember we rolled it out on one of the units at, uh, in the acute care ward first. And I mean, everything from length of stay decreased um, satisfaction from both family members and veterans increased all of those metrics that everyone was kind of looking at. And I, I saw it and I was like, you know what, there's, there's got to be a better um, or, or more of a market for this than just a VA or a, a health system in crisis. Like this, this idea of building relationships with internal and external stakeholders and recipients, the end users, if you would, of healthcare, probably has some legs. So I left the VA about the time that I was going to do the, the consulting with DBHDD. And on the side, I started Rehab U Practice Solutions, which at the time I thought was going to be just a continued education company. Turns out now we're doing patient engagement and retention strategy for uh, healthcare organizations. So that's that. Um, let's see, what are the other highlights? Um, I'm on the board of directors for NBCOT. I was a professor up until last year when I left to, to own a, uh, a physical therapy clinic and do rehab you full time. So that takes us to where we're at now. All righty. Why are we here? This is why you're really signed up, right? You didn't want to hear about me at all. Um, we're going to discuss patient engagement. We're going to discuss compliance with either a home program, if you've got home programs set up with your patients, or compliance with recommendations and information that you provide them, and the role that value or the perception of value plays in all of that. We're going to describe uh, what I call the three main or the three big smoke screens that patients use to avoid uh, talking about value or um, addressing value when they're, you know, either explaining to you that they're canceling their appointments or they're just not showing up. Um, and we'll, exp we'll explain the importance of discussing value with patients and how having a very direct and open uh, conversation with patients about the costs involved, about what is required of them from a time, energy, and um, effort standpoint, not just financial costs, but the other costs, the emotional, the psychological, the social costs of, of coming to your clinic, um, and how the services that you provide fit into the overall desired future state of the patient, if you would, and how you can tie that to a value in a way that makes patients, one, become very engaged in the treatment, two, uh, prioritize their appointments and prioritize being compliant with the recommendations that you provide, and then having a good experience about the, the, the services that they receive in your clinic or through your um, through your facility if you're doing telehealth or virtual services or something like that. 
Um, and then we'll talk about how to deliver high impact, high value services. So we'll kind of define what those high impact, high value services are according to the literature. Um, so I'm, I'm an academic, you know, by, <laughs> by default, I try not to be a stuffy academic, but I do very much value the evidence and evidence-based practice and what the scientific literature has to say uh, to us about the services we provide, the types of services we provide, and their long-term efficacy. So we'll talk about that a little bit as well. So first off, though, why don't patients complete their plan of care? Now, I'm going to tackle this specifically from an outpatient physical dysfunction or rehabilitation uh, frame of mind, because that's what I've done for the last several years. Um, but this very much applies to all the the entire broad spectrum of healthcare services, whether it be a primary care physician or specialty care that might see their patients more intermittently. Um, this is very much pronounced and very apparent in the outpatient rehab world or really ancillary healthcare services where there's a prolonged course of treatment. So the average course of care for physical therapy in the United States tends to be something like two times a week for six weeks. So about 12, 12 visits. So it's very easy to pick up on, you know, decreasing patient engagement numbers and lack of completion of course of care and that sort of thing. So that's why I'm going to be using a lot of, of rehab examples, but these principles kind of extend to anything beyond any, any, uh, what I call direct patient engagement, like patient encounters will benefit from understanding this. So why don't patients complete their course of care? Um, the most cited reason from a survey that we did in 2019, uh, which was, I think there was 75 outpatient clinics, 75 or 76 outpatient clinics that responded to that. The number one reason was insurance denials or limits. Now there's, there's not a whole lot we can do about that. Uh, maybe the, maybe this was an instance where the therapist was recommending, you know, 16 visits and insurance only approved 12. So they didn't technically complete their course of care. Um, because of the, the limits placed on them by third parties. Let's put those aside. Side note, if you've been waiting for the 2020 report and survey to come out, I'm wrapping that up. Hopefully it'll be out by the end of, of May and I'll shoot an email out you know, with a, you know, fireworks and all the hoorah when it comes out. But that's where we're at with that. The next three reasons that we identified through the survey were scheduling difficulties or time constraints or time commitments, unrealistic patient expectations, and the cost of treatment. Now, the way this question was set up was um, we basically asked the participating provider organizations, in your opinion or according to the data that you have, what would be the three main reasons that a patient doesn't complete their course of care? <clears throat> and these were the ones that popped up. So some, some of the the respondents, I know just because we were, we had relationships with them because of the work that we had done through Rehab U, and they were pretty, pretty good at tracking some of these metrics and tracking some of this data. Some of the other ones I, I have no idea about. So the, the three reasons that were cited the most were scheduling difficulties, time constraints, unrealistic patient expectations, and then the cost of treatment. What is very interesting about these is that these three reasons really rely on your ability or are directly affected by you, your clinic's ability or you as a clinician, your ability to effectively communicate the value that those services offer to patients. So we'll break them down and kind of talk about how being able to effectively communicate value can negate or help 
um, respond to some of these objections, if you would, from a patient. So um, before we do that, let's talk a little bit about the need to communicate value. So for many, many years, healthcare organizations really relied on being in network, if you will, to avoid talking about value. However, we're now in a position, just because of the way healthcare primarily in the US has gone, in other places where you've got universal healthcare or something similar, vouchers, this probably isn't as big of a deal for you. Um, I would argue that there are, there are plenty of clinicians doing independent work outside of those government agencies and government systems that are entirely having to rely on communicating value in order to bring patients in. But for us in the US, we're in a situation where there's rising costs to patients, either in deductibles, in premiums, in co-pays, in whatever, that's making patients have to pay more out of pocket for the services that they receive, especially in something like outpatient rehab, where, you, where you're not just seeing a specialist once, maybe every six weeks or once a month, or even you know one time and then following up in three months to see how you're doing a lot of times in, in physical and occupational therapy in the outpatient world, it's at least once a week, sometimes multiple times a week over a course of a month or two months. And that can, those, if you're talking, you know, 50 bucks a visit or something like that, that adds up and patients are spending that out of pocket and those costs are continuing to rise. And there's no, there's no sign that that's going to be, that trend is going to reverse itself over the next couple of years, right? Combine that with the internet and the fact that Basically, any patient with a smartphone can look up in, a, in an instant and see all of the providers who provide the similar services in their area and can make the decision about where they want to go. You combine those two things, and what you've got is a, a situation where patients have more choice, they're aware of the choice, and they're also more cost conscious because of the, the amount of money that they're now having to spend to receive their healthcare services. So in order to keep patients engaged or to get them to show up even in the first place, you need to effectively communicate the value that you provide. Because the, what the reality is, is if let's say it's 50 bucks a visit, or let's say it's 75 bucks a visit or whatever it is, if a patient doesn't see the services that you're providing as valuable, they're going to find a reason not to come, not to show up. Um, or they might say, you know what, clinic A you know, I saw them for my eval and they did not really demonstrate to me the value that they were, that they were going to provide. But I know somebody from clinic B and they were able to effectively communicate to me, I'm spending this much money anyways, might as well spend it with the organization or the clinic that either understands me, understands my situation or offers higher value. So being able to communicate that value effectively is going to keep those patients from dropping off your schedule and going down the street to another clinic, right? All right, so let's talk about these big three again. The time commitments, the unrealistic expectations, and the cost of treatment. We're gonna tackle each one of these individually, and then we'll talk about how you can effectively communicate those high value, high impact services, and then what that means to deliver them or to make good on those promises. So that first one, I'm sure we've all heard this one before. Um, I don't have time to come in. I just can't schedule. Um, I've got you know competing appointments or prior commitments, what, whatever it is that a patient might say. Sometimes those are legitimate, right? Like life happens. I had a patient in our clinic the other day at Proactive who 
we, we pre-book all our plans of care and this patient called and said, listen, you know, I have an appointment tomorrow and something, you know, came up, my kid has a, some kind of rash. And I had to, I, the only time the pediatrician had available was the time that I had scheduled for your appointment. Can I reschedule? Like, yeah, sure. That's a very legitimate, uh, reason or time conflict. <laughs> um, and I, I'm not talking about those. What I'm talking about is most of the time what you're dealing with is a priority problem. And the key and the, really one of the, the red flags or kind of the warning signs that you can see here is when you're trying to schedule or when your front office or your admin personnel are trying to schedule this patient, the patient that might have a priority conflict, you're getting either vague, um, vague conflicts like, oh, I have something then, or um, there's quote, quote unquote, no time is ever good enough, or they have a very specific time, whatever. Um, most of the time it is a priority problem. And the reason is if patients don't see your treatment as more valuable than the other plans or commitments they have lined up, there's always going to be a scheduling conflict, right? So again, being able to communicate value to those patients, the value that your services provide is going to help make them or not, we're not trying to convince anybody, but it's going to help reframe for them how much they should be or should not be prioritizing the services that you provide or your treatment plan. Now, this is happening whether you were intentionally having these conversations with patients or whether you're not having these conversations with patients. In the back of your patient's mind, they are, by nature of being human and the way our psychology works, um, we are automatically prioritizing what we should be paying attention to and deprioritizing and dropping things down that we shouldn't be prioritizing. Now, this is from like a very like evolutionary standpoint. Our brains are designed to prioritize things that are going to keep us alive, that those immediate needs and kind of push off those long-term um, things that can be weighted on those back burner items, right? The way you communicate value, the way you talk about the services you provide can either move those that treatment plan for this patient higher on that list of priority or move it farther down, depending on how you do it. So you need to be aware of it because even if you're not intentionally doing it um, or intentionally aware of it, that is happening in your clients and your patient's minds. There will always be a scheduling conflict if patients don't see you as truly liable. I just said that. All righty. Objection number two the expectations. We've always heard, you know, I've heard this a few times working with, with clients that, oh, these patients just don't have um, realistic expectations of what treatment might be for them. Well, a lot of times we have to dig deeper than just, okay, the patients don't have unrealistic expectations. Why do those patients have unrealistic expectations? Is it because uh, another provider might have given them unrealistic expectations? Is it because they don't truly understand the services that you provide or what typical outcomes are for somebody with their diagnosis? Or is it um, maybe that they they do think that they they should be getting better faster or something like that, right? So one of the reasons, again, is other providers. Many patients come to our clinics, especially in the outpatient world where I'm like, I, my clinic does a lot of work with folks that have chronic musculoskeletal pain, right? A lot of times these patients come to us after having seen multiple other providers and for some reason or another, maybe it's because the other 
practitioners don't want to tell the patients no, or don't want to have that difficult conversation with patients that says, listen, this is what's going on with you and your situation. And the outcomes are X, Y, and Z, and they might not be that great. They, they defer that. And instead of saying that to the patient, they refer them to somebody else, right? Like, okay, this isn't working. I'm not going to tell you that nothing's going to work. So we're going to refer you down to, you know, physical therapy and see if, you know, maybe they can fix you or whatever. And those patients come to you in one of two ways. One, either entirely disengaged already because they've been run through the healthcare system. They've kind of bumped around and they don't really have much hope for recovery or for positive outcomes, or they come with this unrealistic expectation that you're going to be able to fix them in one or two visits. Well, we need to address that out the outset for either of those outcomes, right? Either of those expectations, whether it be we don't have high expectations or we have super high expectations, we want to be able to effectively communicate that to patients where they should actually be. Because according to the research and according to what neuroscience has taught us in the last decade or so, our expectations influence our perceptions and our perceptions are our reality. So if a patient doesn't have a lot of expectations for treatment and we don't ever address those, they're going to perceive at some level, might not be super um, apparent or conscious, but at some level, they're going to perceive the value of the services that you're providing as less than, or they're going to perceive um, a decreased benefit or less than benefit of having the services. If their expectations are way high and you're not able to deliver then they're then you're dealing with that uh, cognitive dissonance of having these high expectations and not seeing it in reality, and then that also is a negative results in a negative outcome or a negative experience for the patient. So we want to address those early, so that we can frame those expectations in a realistic way, so that patients understand what to expect and then can, you know, perceive have a better frame of reference for the perception of the of the services they're going to they're going to receive in your clinic. So sometimes miscommunication or lack of communication be, between your organization and the patient can result in these uh, unrealistic expectations. This needs to be addressed at the very, very front. So I work with a lot of clients and even the clinic that I own, we address this on that first call with patients. We talk with them about, um, we basically have a, a, a checklist of information that our front staff needs to receive, but then also what the patient is expecting from treatment. So one of the questions on that, on that checklist is what are your expectations for treatment? And we get that information before the patient even shows up to the appointment. The clinician is then able to review that before they show up. And that way at that first appointment, when they come in, we can address it. We can say, Hey, you know, Mr. Smith, you know, I know that you talked to, you know, Julie or whoever it is running the front desk. And she kind of gave me this information. I kind of want to talk to you about this in particular. So you said that you want to get back to X, Y, Z and your diagnosis is this. And I just kind of want to give you a frame of reference for understanding how we're going to fit in the, in the course of your recovery or in the course of your treatment. And that way you address it up front so that patients, one, they know you're not BSing them and they know that they can trust you. This does a lot to build therapeutic rapport and therapeutic trust between you and the client. But then it also it, it reframes their expectations so that they have, you know, realistic expectations, accurate expectations of what to expect from treatment. And again, this needs to be addressed at that first appointment. 
Um, addressing expectations. So we do this by educating the patient primarily. One of the, the I think it was episode six of the Better Outcomes show, we had Bronnie Thompson on, and she's an occupational therapist from New Zealand. She talks a lot about and works a lot in the chronic pain space. And one of the things she said to me that kind of stuck out that I've always now passed on to students and to, to other clinicians when we onboard them here and clients when we work with them at Rehab U is that our primary role as clinicians is not to be the great fixers most of the time. Like, yes, we can do manual techniques, we can do manipulations, we can do things to make the tissues better, but, but one of the biggest values that we bring to the table, one of our biggest roles and how we should look at ourselves is really that of knowledge translator. A lot of times our patients are coming to the coming to us and maybe they did a Google search or maybe their um, maybe their primary care, their specialist handed them a thick paperwork, a thick packet full of information about their diagnosis or the situation. And it's just difficult for them to wade through. They're not trained to look at the literature and to make decisions about it. They're not um, so unless they're, they're in the healthcare field, they might be overwhelmed with the big words and the, all of the clinical sounding jargon. So what we bring to the table originally as clinicians is our ability to take that quagmire of information and distill it down in a way that is understandable for our patients in a way that helps them one, understand what's going on, but then two, kind of see the path forward. So being a knowledge translator or educating the patient is one of the main ways that we have, one, address expectations, and then two, kind of help with them to develop a treatment plan that's going to work for them. Um, we need to have a value discussion with patients. Um, having a value discussion basically means this. You sit down with the patient, you figure out what their desired, we call it in the marketing space, it's called your desired future state. But what are, in, in therapy, we might call it their goals. What are their goals for treatment? How do they see their future? How do they want to see their future? And we take that information, that desired future state, and then we talk with them about the services or the treatment options available to them, how we as clinicians or our organization fit into that, that path, if you would, to their desired future state, and basically bring those two things together so that the patient can see, okay, this is my desired future state. This is where I want to be. These are the services or the treatments that I'm going to receive here. And this is how it helps me get to that desired future state. Um, you can talk about like tying metrics to it is another big thing about the, of having a value conversation. So, okay, you want to be, let's say it's, you want to run a marathon or whatever, like what are some metrics or objective measures that, that let us know we're on the right path. Well, it might be, okay, maybe I can tolerate 30 minutes of, of running without back pain. Okay. So that's one of those things we're going to, we're one of those benchmarks we're going to be looking for. Can you run 30 minutes? Um, maybe it's, uh, doing the, the off training days, the, the bike days or something like that with no knee pain or something like that, or knee pain of two out of 10 instead of seven out of 10. Okay. Well, that's going to be a benchmark. And having this conversation and working it through with the patient, working through looking at their desired future state, and then working with them to plan how you're fitting into that, how you're fitting into helping them achieve that desired future state is going to greatly increase their engagement in therapy. One builds the, the therapeutic relationship with you, number two, but then gives them realistic expectations. Because if they tell you something, their desired future state is 
you know, something that is realistically unattainable, giving their diagnosis of their situation, you can address those then and there. Um, and then you don't have this situation where the patient is expecting one thing and they're getting, or they're, they're experiencing something else. Um, so again, this, like, what are the treatment options? Uh, what are the likely outcomes based on those option options? And then how do you as the clinician or your organization fit into the equation? So what, what critical role are your services or your treatments going to play in helping that patient achieve their desired future state? And then objective number three is cost. This is usually the big one now, um, especially folks that maybe get referred to your clinic from a from another physician or another organization, or maybe they see an ad on Facebook or they see an ad on Google ads and they call and they, they set up an appointment to come in, whatever the case may be. Um, most of the time, it is never about the money. Obviously, there are legitimate circumstances where financial costs and financial burdens may prevent a patient from attending regularly your services or your treatments. And in those cases, it's entirely appropriate to, to work with the patient, to put on payment plans, or to, to figure out how you're going to modify the treatment plan in order to address that for the patient so that they can still receive the benefit of your treatments without a lot of the burden of the, you know, the economic and financial costs associated with it. I'm not talking about those either, but most of the time when a patient says it costs too much, usually it's not about the money. <laughs> money is usually a smokescreen for a deeper objection or concern. Usually it's value because again, and I, I have this, I've had this conversation with patients before and with clients before, like you can have a conversation with a patient and say, you know, this is going to prevent you from losing your limb. And the patient will say, okay, well, in that case, let's do whatever we got to do. Right. So the, losing a limb is high up there on the value chain. <laughs> um, doing something for maybe carpal tunnel syndrome or something that might be more or less lower on the, on the, on the value chain. Oh, it's just numbness and tingling. I don't need to spend 50 bucks on, on an appointment, whatever it may be. But if the patient doesn't see the value or doesn't value or prioritize where you're at or the, the problem, then they're not gonna be willing to pay for it. This goes back to what I said earlier. Our brains are always automatically putting things in a hierarchy and, and prioritizing what is immediately important for my survival and my well-being and what is not. And again, if the way you're talking about your services, or the way the patient is perceiving your services is that they're not super high on that priority list, they're not going to be willing to pay, right? If the patient doesn't value treatment, they don't want to pay for it and they won't pay for it. They'll cancel, they'll schedule um, something else. So there'll be a, a scheduling conflict and ultimately they'll say, I just don't want to, don't want to spend the money on it, right? So again, this goes back to that value conversation. Listen, and you know, I've, I've said this to patients too, like, listen, okay, you said that your desired future state is X, you really don't want to have surgery. You know how much the cost of surgery out of pocket is, you know, it's going to be X, Y, Z based off your insurance, you know, like doing, coming into therapy twice a week for six weeks will cost you X amount of dollars. And if you're just going purely on the dollars and cents, you can usually make the, the case that coming to rehab services is going to be less expensive in the long run than surgery. But again, it's not just, it's not just financial costs too. It's, um, it's time commitment. It's that energy and effort 
especially if you're talking lifestyle changes, somebody that might have chronic low back pain or knee pain or something where maybe weight loss or healthy lifestyle habits are going to be critical in them feeling better, like that carries a large cost to patients. And being able to communicate that in a way that both shows the, the importance of it and the, the immediacy of it is going to help your patients a lot in prioritizing those services and then coming to your clinic, right? The value conversation. We've already kind of talked about it a little bit, but ultimately what we're looking at is there are three main objectives when you have a value conversation with your patient. Now, most of the time this happens, or at least it should happen in that first appointment with a patient. There have been some clients of mine that have been able to kind of work this out pre-appointment. So maybe when the patient calls a schedule, they kind of work through a value conversation. Oftentimes, though, you really need clinical skills and clinical reasoning to be able to do this effectively. So I always recommend you do this at the first appointment with the patient. But um, you determine the value you might create for the patient, whether this be um, decreasing their pain, preventing surgery, getting them back to their you know, playing golf or throwing the, the ball in the backyard with the kids, whatever it is. You determine the value for that, for that patient. Um, you can determine what the fair remuneration is or what the payment would be if you're in a private practice in a cash pay setting. Um, but then you want to maintain throughout all of this, you're maintaining the position of the clinical expert. You want to be seen as not just another physical therapist or not just another occupational therapist or another chiropractor in a sea of chiropractors. You want to be seen as the person or the organization that is uniquely qualified or the answer, the unique solution to this specific problem, which goes into, you know, how you market, how you message all of that to bring them in. That's kind of outside of the scope of this webinar. But while you are having the conversation with the patient, you want to maintain that position, or at least the, you want the patient to perceive you as being the knowledgeable clinical expert in this area. All right. So there are some prerequisites for a value conversation. The first one is that obviously you're viewed as a clinical expert. Um, and this might be, again, the way you set up those primary calls, those scheduling calls with patients um, really helps you determine whether or not this is the case. <clears throat> if not, you have to do a little bit more work at that first point before you dive into value. You have met with all the decision makers. So if this is a situation where uh, it's a pediatric clinic. I know we had somebody from OT for Kids in the US, in the UK was signed on here a little bit ago. Um, that the decision makers may not be the patient themselves, but it may be their guardian, their caregiver, their parent. Sometimes, if they're if they have a life partner or a spouse or or a significant other or something like that, those might be the decision makers. If they're a case manager, if it's workman's comp or something like that, they might end up being the ultimate decision maker. Um, so you've met with and discussed kind of the desire for you to stay with those people. Um, and then you've uncovered the real value drivers for that patient or for those decision makers, whether it be um, a case manager in the case of a, a workman's comp, whether it be a parent in the case of a pediatric clinic or a spouse or a loved one or something like that. And this revolves around the desired future state of the patient or those stakeholders. All right, from there, you move into that desired future state. What are the goals? What are their expectations for treatment? 
you move into metrics then. Okay. So how will we know we, that we have succeeded? So it might be playing 18 holes of golf without back pain. It might be, um, you know, throwing the, the baseball in the backyard with the grandkid without shoulder pain. It might be getting back into the gym and lifting weights without feeling that pinch in my shoulder, whatever it is. And then you tackle the value subject, which is subjective and henceforth tricky. So value in and of itself is entirely subjective and in the eye of the beholder. Um, so if this is not going to be one of those cookie cutter things that you could just put a script on and kind of bandaid over, you know, move through your checklist and call it a day. This is one of those where you really have to dive in with each patient and de- de- really uncover what those value drivers are for that patient. So for two patients with rotator cuff disorders or rotator cuff impingement might have entirely different desired outcomes and desired activities they want to return to. And it's your job to kind of drill down for each individual, right? And then we want to offer some kind of pricing guidance, right? We want to frame the cost of treatment in and around the price related to achieving those desired future goals. And you can have these conversations with patients down the line, or you can have them right then and there um, in the, in that first appointment, but saying something like, listen, you know, you told me that, you know, getting back to, to playing golf was, is very, very important to you. You said it's kind of the, the top priority. Um, I know that we're not quite there yet. And we've got a few more visits left on your treatment plan. I know you're wanting to cancel because you say, you're saying that it's really expensive and it's, it's hard to keep up with. You, you don't want to pay for, for services anymore. Um, has something changed in your, in your priorities or is getting back to doing golf really important to you? And being able to, to have that conversation again and again throughout treatment with patients helps kind of re-engage them if they get to the point where they're kind of falling off the bandwagon or they feel like they're, they're tired of paying for services or they feel like they're, they're going to stop right just before hitting their goals. I know that's one of the, one of the things that is most and was when I was uh, doing clinical work all the time was very, very disappointing for me. It was to see a patient like almost at the finish line, almost there. And they're falling off because they just, they, in their minds, what I, what I heard from them in conversation was they just, they didn't see it as important anymore. So they were giving up. Right. So being able to take and reference that conversation that you had at the first appointment saying, listen, I know that it feels like you're not quite there yet. You're, you're, you might even be hopeless about it, but we're moving, we're seeing progress. And, um, ultimately, unless your, unless your priorities have changed, unless your desired future state is different than what it was when you told me at the beginning, like, I, I really think we're going to, you know, we're, we're on the way there. Right. And having those conversations with patients helps re-engage them. So you can reference these value conversations throughout the course of treatment to keep patients engaged, to keep them, um, to keep them really showing up to their appointments. Because as we know, especially in the outpatient rehab world, if you're not doing your, you're following your home program, if you're not showing up to your appointments regularly, obviously the outcomes on the long run are going to be less than ideal, right? Um, you can address this value at all stages. I just said, so at the initial experience during their, um, during their course of treatment, when you're bringing it back up and Hey, have your priorities changed? Just wanting to check. And you can, you can always have a, a re, you know, redo the value conversation of reassessments or reavals, especially if they're Medicare patients and you're doing a 10th visit anyways. Right. 
Um, and then at testimonial and referral stage, when they're, when you're discharging the patient, you can always get them to give you a testimony about the value that you created. Right? So the key points is most patients don't complete their course of care. You know, seven out of 10 drop off according to the, to a systematic review in, in 2010. Um, a lot of times it's because they might not see the value in the treatment. And if they don't see you as meaningly, meaningfully different, valuable, or an expert, there will always be conflicts which prevent them from coming to their appointments. So you must uncover their desired future state and then kind of frame treatment within the context of achieving those goals. So let's move on to the high value, high impact services that you can provide, how we can tap into those. So part of this involves understanding the patient relationship cycle. Um, if you think about a patient and their interactions with you and your clinic or your organization, they might start as a new referral. They might start off not even knowing about you and kind of running across a Facebook ad or an internet ad or whatever. So there's an, an initial experience. And in that initial experience, that's when we're having that value conversation. That's when we're demonstrating the value we can provide. And then they become a current patient. Maybe they sign up to a plan of care, whatever it is. And you're having to engage them throughout the course of treatment. Again, that's another point where you're having to demonstrate the value. You're having to lean in on those high impact services, those high impact treatments, according to the literature and so on. And it carries on through their, their course of treatment until you've retained them, until they've completed their course of treatment and until they've become hopefully a returning patient with your, um, with your clinic or your organization. So high value, high impact. This has to be person-centered. So they're there are no cookie cutter treatment approaches or, you know, one size fits most like this is part of the, the value that we would provide is tailoring the information, tailoring the treatments for that patient and for their specific circumstances. We want to manage their expectations. We want to facilitate self-management according to the literature. We'll dive into that in a minute here, but self-management is huge. Um, and then I've talked about it before, but then knowledge translation being the point, um, we at the clinic that I own at proactive, we call it being healthcare guides. So we guide patients through the, through the, the available treatment options. That's one of the things that we do. And that is in and of itself, a high value, high impact service. Um, and then we provide encouragement, coaching and empowerment. And the, really the real value is that therapeutic relationship, that long-term value building relationship between you and the clinic, or I mean, you and the, the patient or your clinic and the patient. So patient expectations, we already talked about these, they must be addressed. Um, what we need to address here now, especially in the outpatient rehab world, is this whole idea of passive versus active treatment techniques. The literature is very clear, according to the, the studies that have been done, that Passive treatment techniques, things like um, manual techniques, soft tissue mobilizations, uh, joint mobilizations, whatever they are, laser, ultrasound, you name it, those have their place in treatment. I'm not going to say they don't, but they do not provide long-term functional outcomes to patients, which means that if all you are doing or if the core of your treatment approach is these passive modalities where a patient comes in and they want to be massaged or they want to be stretched or they want to have the laser and that's the bulk of their treatment program, you're going to fail to provide them long-term 
relief or long-term positive benefits. So part of what we do at the clinic and part of what we have our clients do at Rehab U is we have clinicians sit down with the patients at that first appointment. We have that expectation talk with them. And while we're having the expectation talk with them, we're talking about the treatment techniques that they're going to receive in the clinic. We say, obviously, you know, like ultrasound worked for you in the past. Okay. You know, that's something that we might incorporate. However, you know, the literature shows that the, to get long-term benefit, we can't just rely on the ultrasound alone. We have to move, you know, maybe it's this kind of exercise or maybe it's this kind of activity or whatever it is, but you need to educate patients and inform them that active treatments and active treatment techniques provide better long-term outcomes than passive treatments alone. Um, and you need to make that very clear with patients at the beginning so that they're not set up again. Uh, this might be really pertinent for those in physical therapy or chiropractors out there that their patients want and they want an adjustment or they want a mobilization. And then, you know, can we just do the massage today? Or can we just do the mobilization today? We need to encourage patients. We need to educate them that that's not the way to reach those desired future states. And it moves us really towards a biopsychosocial approach where we're not just looking at the issues with the tissues, if you would, but we're looking at kind of the complex context of a patient when we're developing treatment plans. Um, this is kind of what I explained earlier, but our context or our environment influence our expectations, our expectations influence our perception, our perceptions influence the experience that we have and the choices that result from that experience. So we need to address those early with patients, again, at that first appointment. And part of that is this move from uh, passive treatments to active treatments. So we want to facilitate self-management. So we want to provide better long-term outcomes than relying on passive interventions alone. We've already said that. Um, core, the core component of treatment should provide the patient with the skills, techniques, and strategies um, to manage their own health in the long run, right? So I always tell patients when they come in, whether they be a chronic pain patient or a post-surgical patient, like, listen, the goal of this is that at the end of treatment, you don't have to come back to me again for this, <laughs> right? Like our ultimate, our ultimate goal as clinicians should be to get patients to the point where they can do it on their own without us. Now, some people are worried about running out of patients at that point. I'm not too worried about that. I think the, the statistics from recent polls show that, you know, I can't remember how many millions of people in the United States suffer from low back pain and only 10, 10 to 11% of them get referred to physical or occupational therapy. Okay. There's, there's 90% of the people experiencing pain are not even aware of or receiving the services. I don't think you're going to run out of patients. Um, but there's two main goals here. We want to empower patients to become the drivers of their own healthcare. That's super big. And then we want to decrease the dependence on clinicians. And it fundamentally, what it does is alters the patient relationship that you have with them. So no longer are you like a Mr. Fix-It or a handyman. It moves you really past that transactional approach where the patient comes in, you do something to them, they get better, they leave, they come back next week and they're in pain, they want you to do it again. We wanna fundamentally change that relationship so that you're no longer a vendor, if you would. You're no longer the person that manipulates the spine or the person that does the, the massage, but you're the trusted guide, if you would, that healthcare a guide or coach that's helping the patient take charge of their own recovery. Um, again, knowledge translation being though the, the knowledge translators that we are as clinicians, we should quote, facilitate active engagement approaches 
um, and reduce reliance on passive interventions. Again, when you think about the value that we provide as clinicians, a lot of that is knowledge translations. Our patient, our patients are coming to us kind of swimming in the, the available options out there and they don't really know what to do. Part of our job is to point them in the right direction. And that should involve pointing them towards those high impact, high value services, which are those active treatments, those self-management approaches. So if self-management and active treatments offer the highest value to patients, then it should permeate our patient education materials. So we don't wanna have a whole lot of conversation with patients about how we can stretch their muscle here, how we can do this manipulation there. We want to talk with them about the ways that they can manage it on their own, right? Or what they need to do, the exercises they need to complete, the activities they need to do in order to kind of manage it without us in the picture so that we end up being those, those guides and play more of a consultative role than a doer role, if you would. Um, we want to address patients, quote unquote, not seeing the point of attending telehealth visits or, or, um, or in-person visits, because we want to reframe their expectations of treatment from this, I can't, um, I can't touch you, I can't feel you. So this is specifically like in the telehealth world, if you're relying on these passive treatments, you're going to run into patients that say, well, I don't want to see a tele, I don't want to do a telehealth visit because I need you to stretch me. So we want to reframe their expectations and say, no, the me stretching you isn't the important part. It's the you doing that's the important part, right? We want to move from a position of we're, we're doing things to patients to doing things with patients. And at that point, when you make that flip in the patient's mind, then going to a telehealth or a virtual appointment makes a lot of sense because what you're, what you're, the value that you're providing is the doing with, not the doing to. All right. The encouragement and coaching, empowerment, all of the, that nine yards is, um, unfortunately, many patients come to you ex expecting or desiring short-term relief, even at the expense of long-term outcomes. So they walk into your, into your clinic wanting you to stretch them, right? The, the do to them, right? Your patients need to understand that your role in the process is to provide the tools and the skills that they need to manage it on their own. So I always talk to patients about it like this. We're going to, we're going to build this scaffolding around you, especially in the world of chronic pain. We're going to build this scaffolding around you. And that might involve me doing some manual techniques. It might involve some modalities. It might involve some passive treatments, but the goal is as we progress through this treatment program, we're going to begin removing some of that scaffolding. We're going to remove some of those techniques that you've relied on. And the goal is that over time, you're going to get to the point where you're going to look back and you're going to realize that there's no scaffolding around you at all. And you're doing it by yourself. That's what we want. So obviously passive treatments have a role in that, but they're not the end all be all. And then the ultimate value again is relationships. So moving beyond that transaction with the patient, passive modalities, again, equals transactional engagements and transactional relationships. The patient comes in, you do something for them, they leave, they come back, right? You need to move to the deeper level or a deeper um, pain or factor that's addressing or causing their dysfunction. Um, so we need to move to their hopes for the future. That's why, we, that's why it's super important to get their desired future state, their desired goals, their long-term goals and their vision for their, for what they see as their, their hope for the future, because that's really what we want. We don't want to 
And, you know, I tell this patient all the time, like, it doesn't do me any good for you to walk out of the clinic today with, you know, pain at one out of 10 and you came out of here with seven out of 10. And then next week you come back and it's still at a seven again, right? Like the goal is to help get you to the point where even if it does get up to a seven, when you're not here, that you have the tools and the, and the strategies available to manage it without having to make an emergency room visit or come in to see me again for another appointment that week. It's all about that scaffolding, right? We're building a scaffolding of safety around them and then we're pulling that scaffolding down as they get more and more uh, independent in some of these skills to the point where they turn around and they look around and they say, oh, I'm doing this on my own, right? Um, and the focus, again, the focus of the interaction needs to be on the empowerment. I always tell patients, and it's one of the, the, the values here at, at Proactive, is that we help patients take the driver's seat of their own healthcare. So again, we're moving beyond those transactional engagements. We're moving from a vendor to really a trusted guide or an advisor to help patients achieve their, their ultimate goal, which is a healthy life. No one wants to be painful. No one wants to feel pain. No one wants to be limited. And if you can begin delivering services to your patients and delivering treatment options that puts you in that advisor or that empowerment role, you're going to get one higher levels of patient engagement and patient satisfaction, but you're going to get those better long-term outcomes, those functional outcomes that we want. Um, and then you're going to have greater impact in your work, right? You're going to have those long-term relationships with patients that they come back and they see you months or years later, you know, maybe for something else, or maybe they're bringing their, their siblings or their neighbors or whoever to you because you made such an impact on their life. So in summary, it's not enough to just be the clinical expert. Communication is the key. We want to be able to communicate with our patients the value we provide within the context of their desired future state and their expectation for treatment and how we fit into that equation. Um, I, I don't know if they if you missed this in school the way I did, but they never talked to us about how we communicate the value of the services we provide. They talked to us about maybe knowledge translation and how we can use health literacy to help patients understand what's wrong with them. But we, they never made the jump to this is how you communicate what you're going to do and how it's going to fit in with the patient's ultimate goals. Right. We want to move towards, towards those high value, high impact services, which requires a fundamental change in the process of your practice from the way you onboard patients to the way services are actually delivered to the, the core offerings that you deliver. And even the way you message that on your website, the way your um, and your materials, the way the, the, the words that you use, the words that you choose to use or omit are very, very important. And then the goal is to build long-term trusting empathetic relationships with patients and that helps you lean into the value that you as a... If you're interested in learning more about us, uh, The Better Outcomes Show is our podcast. We explore the possibilities of new healthcare. It's always exciting to have conversations with folks that are really leaders in the field and doing innovative things. If you want insights and articles, you can go to our insights page. If you want to read the manifesto, it's there on the website. Um, if you have any questions, again, you can contact me, shoot me an email at rafi at rehabupracticesolutions.com. Connect with me on LinkedIn. I love talking with folks about the value that OT and PT and really ancillary healthcare providers can provide to their patients. And if you want to work with me to craft your clinic's patient engagement strategy, you can head over to rehabupracticesolutions.com slash UPE to read a little bit about the process and how we help you master the patient uh, relationship cycle for your specific clinic. 
until the next time, everyone be safe, be healthy. I will talk to you then. Thanks for listening to the Better Outcome Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Our hope is that you walk away from each episode informed, equipped, and empowered to push the boundaries in your own practice or business. We want to give you the tools to help you build strong, long-lasting relationships with your patients and clients, helping meet their goals, improve their health, and achieve better outcomes. Learn more at www.rehabupracticesolutions.com. We'll catch you on the next episode.